Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. I'm here today with Dr. Michael Bird, who after this I will call Mike. Um, he is the academic dean and lecturer at Ridley College in Brisbane, Australia. Or is it Brisbane or Melbourne? Sorry. Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Melbourne Australia. Australia. Um, and so I, I'm sure most of my audience already knows you pretty well. You are a very well-known early Christianity scholar. Um, with a special focus on Christology. You've also appeared in debates with Bart Ehrman and um, are sort of a well-known apologist with a, uh, a very solid grounding in early Christian history and New Testament studies. So uh, I, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background, sort of what was your, your faith background like? How did you get interested in these subjects and how did you find yourself uh, where you are today? Uh, yeah, well, that is that is a long story. Um, the faith background journey is is uh, quite long. I didn't grow up in a uh, religious environment. I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. Uh, I became a Christian while I was in the army, of all places. Uh, I got invited to church and went along, and I heard the good news of Jesus, his death for our sins, his resurrection to give us new life, and uh, the uh, the offer to, to join him uh, in the kingdom of God. So yeah, that was that was uh, a big thing for me when I was twenty years old. I'm now uh, you know, almost fifty, and I you know, initially thought about becoming an army chaplain, uh, but uh, when I went to seminary, became a parent, I was a lot better on the academic side than I was on the on the pastoral skill side. Uh, so I, I proceeded to do a couple of um, postgraduate degrees, uh, got a doctorate in New Testament studies. I then taught at the Highland Theological College in Scotland for uh, nearly five years. I then taught at the Brisbane School of Theology for three years, and I've been at Ridley College now for uh, just on 10 years. Mm -hmm. So how did you get interested uh, specifically in the subject of sort of early Christology and, and early Christian views on the divinity of Jesus? Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's, I think it's a big part of the, uh, the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament, you've got Christians dealing with all sorts of issues. How do they relate to their pagan neighbors? Um, what is the relationship of uh, the, how do you read the Jewish scriptures in light of their messianic faith? Uh, and a big thing is who is Jesus and the various responses to Jesus. You could, you could argue that the New Testament is, or let me say it again, that you could argue that um, the phenomena, the event, of, of Jesus is like a bomb has gone off and everyone's sitting around both trying to figure out what's happened and explain to each other what's <laughs> happened. And there's kind of a conversation going on. So who was that guy and what just exactly happened? Uh, so if you're going to study the New Testament, if you're going to study the phenomena of early Christianity, you inevitably have to res wrestle with the question, who, who was Jesus and who was he to his earliest followers? Mm -hmm. So we'll be mostly talking about a new book that you have out. It's uh, called Jesus Among the Gods, Early Christology in the Greco-Roman World. And uh, if I had to briefly summarize, it, it's taking uh, a look at different views of divinity and interactions between divinity and humanity in both sort of the Jewish and the Greco-Roman pagan and sort of the overlap between those two in the sort of the context leading up to and immediately after um, the life of Jesus and how that can help inform us through analogy, but also inform us through disanalogy of uh, what Christians were uniquely trying to say about Jesus. So, uh, what, what, how, why, why this book and why this book now? 
Oh, for for a number of reasons. Um, one, I, I I'd had some interactions with Bart Ehrman. I mean, Bart's got his own view about how Jesus became God. And mm-hmm. uh, the one thing I liked about Ehrman, he didn't do what I would call the the old rationalist view that Jesus was initially just a humble Jewish prophet. Uh, and then they regard him as an eschatological deliverer. And then by the time you get to the Gospel of John, then they believe he's divine. Um, Ehrman recognized quite rightly, and I, and in hindsight, I should have given him more credit for this in our initial sort of um, melee, uh, is that he recognized, at least from the moment of the resurrection, Jesus was regarded as divine. The question was, in what sense? divine and and that's the, i mean people think if you're divine then obviously you're the ultimate you know metaphysical absolute deity but there was kind of a spectrum of deity in the ancient world and this is there's something i like about um nt Wright. he says when we talk about jesus and god we often act as if we know what the word god uh, means but we don't know what jesus means so we just need to find out who jesus is and then we'll know what who god is um, where you could argue that the word God actually has some different meanings in the world, um, in, in antiquity, amongst Jews, Christians, pagans. Uh, and then you've got to figure out who Jesus is. And yeah, so it's it's it's, a, it's it can be a little bit confusing. So I, I wanted to go back and address that question. Um, you know, even if you say that Jesus was regarded as divine very early, that doesn't necessarily uh, mean it's an absolute... It doesn't clarify point. a whole lot. Yeah, It doesn't clarify um it's uh it's 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 kind of like oh yeah i'll meet you in a cafe in arizona um you know well <laughs> there's a lot of cafes in arizona i'm pretty sure um you know so it's it's like what that means and so when you know when paul or um you know mark calls jesus divine uh you know what, what do they mean by that i mean the the other problem i have i had is uh that's the sort of low high christology uh debate was people said well john's christology is very high uh, the Gospel of Mark is not John. Therefore, whatever Mark's Christology is, it must be low compared to John. So I wanted, I wanted to, ex, to, ex, to ex say that. Well, that's a, kind of a false dichotomy. Um, that's kind of like saying everything that is not cheese is bacon, um, mm-hmm. which is, a, a, again, a bit of a fallacy. And I, I just went through and I looked at, well, what were the different ways of categorizing divinity in the ancient world? And generally I found that uh, the authors we have attested in, in, in classical antiquity seems to divide deities into two types, which are absolute deities and then what you might call promoted deities. This, they'd call these uh, unbegotten and begotten gods or uncreated and promoted divinities. So you, you have some uh, divinity, maybe this is like a Zeus, Jupiter, Dios, who's considered an uncreated deity, even though in, in, in some mythology he does have a father. Uh, and then you've got other people like um, Heracles, Asclepius, or a Roman emperor, who then become divine or get elevated and promoted into divinity. And I mean, and, and they, they use the language of begotten and un, unbegotten. And it, what really struck me once, I was, in, um, I was up in the American Northwest and went into a charming little bookshop in a charming little town called Bellingham up in Washington state. And I found a, a, a very cheap copy of a book by Plutarch. And I, I found him talking about uh, two types of worship of, uh, of, of, of Apollo. One, um, 
one is an unbegotten deity, one is a begotten deity. And I was struck by that. But I thought, well, I, I thought that was like technical Christian language that emerged in the fourth yeah, century. I thought, I thought, yeah, it I sounds thought, like a, a worship veneration distinction or something. Yeah, like it, it sounded like something that, you know, the fourth century fathers would argue about. But this was kind of like, you know, first century BC. And I thought, oh my gosh. So I, I kind of went up, looked in a few lexicons and found out this language was quite um, prevalent the ways people spoke about deity in antiquity. And I noticed very few New Testament scholars had resourced this. Uh, the only two I'd really found were um, Jerome Nere, Gabriella Boccaccini, and a little bit of Jürgen Frey. Um, but no one had been using this language, and this seems to be the main the main index. Uh, and that, that leads to the question, well, if those are the two indices of divinity, then which one is Jesus? Is he an unbegotten deity, or is he a begotten deity? And I go through, and I think it's very clear in places like John and Hebrews and Revelation, Jesus is an unbegotten deity. Uh, in some other texts, it may be a little bit more opaque. Um, I, I do wonder whether the, the, the Synoptic Gospels are, re are, are really using that that taxonomy. I, I think they're simply using the, uh, the presence, power, and maybe even the identity of, of Yahweh as something that, they, that, they, that they're identifying Jesus with. So I mean that that that's that's basically the the the, the first two reasons you know what, what do we mean by God and using this new taxonomy uh, of unbegotten and begotten deities. Uh, the other thing to remember is that in biblical studies, uh, when people come to New Testament Christology, they they tend to uh, gravitate to one of three poles. Either they talk about uh, a functional Christology that Jesus has certain functions that are godlike. I mean, it doesn't mean he's godlike Yahweh. It just means he has certain godlike functions and then others want to say well no you, you need to you need to look at the concept of identity the distinctive features um the discrete um identity of israel's god and how that's also applied to jesus and others want to talk about well no yahweh receives a particular type of discrete worship and jesus also receives worship so he's divine in the sense of he receives veneration now all of those views have pro and cons Jesus has divine functions, but you can find you know, angels and other beings also exercise similar divine functions. Um, yeah, some elements of divine identity, I think, ring true. But then again, you can find other um, intermediary figures who often have these elements of divine identity. And again, you know, worship is a very broad category, ranging from you know, offering respect and obedience to a king all the way through to what you offer in cultic worship to a deity. So... Yeah, I was trying to open up a new debate in Christology discussions beyond the functional um, identity and, you know, venerative categories for classifying divinity. Yeah, putting ontology back on the table, as I think yeah, exactly. sort of and everyone, said. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And everyone says, well, you know, ontology, that happens all later. And I'm going, well, no, if you, if you stick Paul between Philo and Plutarch, um, you know, Philo and Plutarch talk a lot about divine ontology. Um, yeah, because yeah, Philo critiques Caligula. Caligula claimed to be divine. And, you know, Philo says, you know, although he prances around dressing up as the god Mars, he does not have the oozier. He does not have the stuff, the substance of divinity. And uh, no one seems to talk about that kind of stuff. And that, that's what kind of baffled me. And I, and I want to bring ontology back in the picture and say it's not something that happens just later. So I, I have a question about your, your classification system. So you have a, a table early on in your book, which is true gods and then divinized benefactors are heroes. 
true gods are ancient as opposed to new, um, and true gods are celestial as opposed to terrestrial. True gods are without a beginning or ungenerated or unbegotten as opposed to coming into being in time. And then true gods are imperishable, divinized heroes have died and then been translated. True gods are eternal and divinized gods are made immortal. And so my question is, is, well, what about gods that are begotten, but begotten in heaven? And for a pagan example, you could use, say, Athena, right, who has a divine parent and isn't born on earth. She isn't like Her Hercules or Heracles who gets elevated, but she has an origin, right? And perhaps even in time, depending on how Greeks interpret the temporal relation of their myths. But then also, like in a Hebrew worldview, it would be, what about, um, what about angels? And even Philo, he calls... The, the logos or the news, the second God that, that's generated from the first God. But mm. this isn't a terrestrial ascent of the logos. It's sort of like kind of divine and heavenly, but generated. So I was wondering how, how you made sense of sort of what maybe that intermediary space between a true God and an elevated hero God. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. You've got to remember some of the eternal gods were kind of um, general, like, you know, Zeus, Jupiter, Dios, I mean, he's kind of like the king of the gods, but in, and, and that's the absolute statement, but behind that, there's the mythology that he was generated by his father, Saturn. So in a mm -hmm. sense, he's technically uh, a begotten, but as you say, kind of begotten um, in eternity past. A, a like non-terrestrial begotten. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's a heavenly, and what I think is going on is people say, well, look, there is an absolute deity, you know, a, a complete divine being um, who's sort of, you know, always been there and he's the father of all human beings, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but they, they would distinguish between um, religion at the, at the levels of civic religion, where you've got the cult of benefactors, emperors and rulers. Then you've got the sort of the, the God of philosophy which is where this language of begotten, unbegotten. And then you've got the God of poets. And then it's in the poetry where you get the stories of, you know, um, Zeus beating up his dad, Saturn, and becoming king of the gods and forcing him to vomit all the children he's eaten and stuff like that. So um, I think people would say you're kind of confusing three different um, tiers of divinity in the ancient world. The sort of the philosophical ideas of the absolute divinity with the, the poetic or the mythical language of how these dogs, gods came to be. Uh, so it's it's a little bit kind of, um, you know, you've got Spider-Man in the movies, Spider-Man in the comic books, and then you've got, you know, Spider-Man action figures. I mean, they're all Spider-Man, but they're doing three different things with it. Um, I, think that, I think that's what's happening in, um, in terms of the language of Zeus and the other gods. So I think they're, I think they're generally regarded as things that are meant to be always there, um, although not not all not not all um, deities are necessarily uh, created gods like he, uh, like Marduk, the Babylonian god Marduk, he creates the world, but he is himself created by earlier gods. Um, the the other the other thing I, th I think there is a and this is where I do think there is a distinction between let's call it pagan um, theism and um, Jewish and Christian theism, and, and this is one thing I noticed: the the, the gods are eternal in the sense that they are the most powerful forces within the world, okay? They're not kind of forces that 
uh, are purely beyond the world that they may they may be um, extraterrestrial they may be supernatural but they 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 are embodied and manifested as the most powerful forces in the world so there isn't a kind of well this world they're x and in the other world they're y that those two worlds are, are closely connected even if they can't be conflated so that's how that's how i'd answer the uh first part of your question can sam remind me the second part sure so what about angels say then oh, in yeah. a hebrew worldview who are sometimes even called gods or son of god in yep. in hebrew but both the old testament and apocrypha work yep. so how do because they're not terrestrial but they're yep. not unoriginate so how, yeah how i mean that... and there's yeah that they're generally regarded as created heavenly beings and because they're heavenly you can call them you know divine uh, in a sense in the sense that they're supernatural in the sense that they are heavenly creatures you know that you know that kind of a thing um into in, but you do you do get these these sort of the in-between in beings now the best example of an in-between being comes from Philo, and that's as you mentioned the logos and um he he's the ultimate in-betweener because philo says very explicitly the logos is not unbegotten as god but he's not begotten as human beings uh he's and he says he he is he is quite literally in between um, so he's the one who's literally standing on the fence between begotten and unbegotten. Uh, but Philo does believe in a robust boundary between God and humanity. Okay. Uh, that's why he would, Philo would say human beings are not in the image of God because no one can be in the image of God. God is so other and transcendent. We are in the image of the Logos, who is a type of image of God. And Philo also says things like, um, sooner could God become man than man become God. And so Philo rules out both um, incarnation and deification. Although he, he may have in mind... Although does he of... rule out highest deification or because he would still have a participation in the Logos kind of idea. Yeah, but, but the you... Logos is as far as you get. You can participate in something divine, right? But the logos you can participate in second tier, imminent yeah. divinity, but not yeah. transcendent. Um, you know, divinity. I mean, I mean, no one can really see God, let alone participate. So, you know, Philo can talk about. I mean, one of his favorite fra phrases is the Israel who sees God, and anyone who understands scripture, philosophy, and lives an ethically upright life, even if you're a pagan, if you're a pagan monotheist with good ethics. You can be part of this Israel who sees God, but you don't see him absolutely or clearly. You only see him uh, in his sort of, you know, um, manifested attributes or through things like the Logos, which is the sort of, you know, a mixture of a chief angel and personification. I mean, Philo really does oscillate in how he describes the, the, the Logos uh, quite significantly. Um, so how, what, what evidence would you point to in the New Testament um, for the view that Jesus is this highest category of true God or, or highest divinity? Uh, when, he's, when Jesus is regarded as um, having the, the attributes of a creator uh, or the one through whom God created, uh, God the Father created the world. Um, now, th this brings us into the category of what's called demiurgism, okay? Which is to say a, a demiurge is kind of, it means literally um, the craftsman, okay? And this goes back to Plato. Plato 
talks about a divine craftsman. I mean, he, and even then he tends to subcontract it out to a thing called the world soul. And you've also got the cooperation of these lesser gods. And it's a very complex, um, multifaceted work to make the world. But you have this idea of the, the, the craftsman. And that then comes into a whole bunch of Jewish and Christian literature as well. Uh, normally, it is predicated of God the Father. God is the uh, craftsman, the, the, the architectural maker of, of, of the cosmos of the world. Um, generally, other beings do not participate in this. I mean, there may be one or two uh, exceptions, but they're, they're a little bit ambiguous. But it's, it's often stressed that Jesus, it's not Jesus, that God cooperates without assistance, okay? Uh, and yet we find uh, Christians uh, resourcing this demiurgical tradition to basically say God does create, but it's God creating through and in partnership uh, with the Logos, with the Son. And that's something you find in John's Gospel, something you find um, uh, certainly in, in, in across Paul's letters, I think of you know, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 and other places. So that's one indication that Jesus is uh, operating in, in the language of creation. Um, other places, Paul can say things that imply that Jesus has a strong divine nature. I do think uh, Philippians 2, um, and, I, and I know you've been talking to Andrew Perryman. I've, I've, I've spoke to um, Andrew Perryman a few days ago. I mean, like I think form of God means the outward manifestation of deity, but it's the outward manifestation of what something is. And it's in this case, I think it's a, it's a equivalent to equal with God. So form of God, equal to God together. You then lace that with some really strict monotheistic rhetoric from Isaiah 45 at the end. Uh, that I think is making a very strong claim uh, for divinity. Uh, Hebrews, I think Hebrews 1 is another one. Um, in talking about Jesus's superiority to the angels, it does talk about Jesus as the creator of the angels and that kind of thing. Um, talks about all the, all the ways the sun is superior to the angels. So, I mean, th those, are, those are the main places around the New Testament I would go to. I mean, then you also got, you know, I think certain things in Revelation. Revelation, um, d d the book of Revelation does have... Uh, a complex Christology because on the one hand, Jesus can be described with angelic characteristics uh, in, in what is a genuine angelomorphic Christology. He looks like an angelic creature from, you know, Daniel 10 or Daniel 7 or from uh, Ezekiel. But in other senses, he shares in, I think, in the identity, the worship and uh, many of the things that were that were normally predicated of of Yahweh as an absolute divine being are also attributed to um, the risen and exalted Lord, and even in eternity past. Mm -hmm. So, what what would you make of Andrew Perryman's take on, say, First Corinthians eight six, where he's arguing that the the all things that are from the Father and the all things that are through Jesus is not the original Genesis 1 creation of the cosmos, but something more like the new creation and spiritual blessings um, of the new covenant and the new things that are coming to us through Jesus. So all of that is through Jesus. So all things there doesn't mean rocks, stones, mountains, waters, and heavens. It means something like eternal life and the gospel and the kingdom or something like that. Uh, yeah, I think that's pushing a very big rock up a very steep hill. I think tar panta, all things, means all things. 
and that type of language does get used a lot and with with to, to be honest a quite a remarkable de degree of consistency uh in jewish new testament and then in later in patristic literature for describing the universe so um you know where, where i think andrew has a better case is when he talks about the form of god and is this talking about Jesus who just appeared on the scene as a divine being, um, the way a, a Heracles or an Asclepius might appear? That, that's the form of God. You, know, you can think of Acts 14 where uh, Paul and Barnabas are mistaken for Hermes and Zeus, you know, because of what's going. So does Jesus appear on the scene as a divine being? Um, uh, now, I can see where he's coming from, but that little phrase, equal with God, uh, you know, irrespective of whether he's already godded or grasping after it. I think that is a, implying a slightly higher state um, for Jesus than merely the the, um, the the terrestrial epiphany or the metamorphosis of, of some sort of God in, in, in human form. So that's why I, I thought he was interesting, uh, but I wasn't ultimately convinced by, by that point. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you talk a fair amount about what you could call the early church fathers in the book, say, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, Athenagoras, Tertullian, those sorts of folks. And in, in my reading of them, in my estimation of them, they, they have a created logos very similar to Philo. That's sort of this intermediary divinity, sort of like this imminent divinity, you could mm -hmm. say, or something like that, as opposed to the, the full transcendent hyper divinity or highest divinity of the father. So it's it's not that they think that Jesus originated on earth, but they think he has an origin and even maybe even a creation. They use that word every once in a while in heaven. And that it's sort of like it's not it's not an incarnation of highest divinity divinity it's an incarnation of second highest divinity. Would you well, it, say it varies? It varies a bit. Um, I think, and, and this is the problem. I think some of the church fathers either don't have the same precision that we would like, or they are not as consistent as we would like. I think that's the two things. The the problem is we cannot help but read um, the New Testament and the church fathers in light of what we hope happens next, in light of the the debates and the definitions that happen later. And when we use a word, we assume, ah, oh, yeah, they must mean that word the same way it got used. But some of those words change in many. I mean, the word hypostasis in 325, um, you know, um, becomes almost equivalent to oozier. Uh, but right. by it's anathema at the yeah it gets anathema I mean, to, to to say yeah, that there, those who say there are three hypostasis get anathematized but by 381 hypostasis is back in you can have it's now one oozier because back was back then they were treating hypostasis and oozier as equivalent so no 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 these are it's being in person uh, that's that's separate so so words change over like a 50-year period so with the church fathers, particularly, I think the second century apologists, they don't have the same um, precision as the later uh, creeds, and also they may not have been very, or not as very, or not as consistent in their language. Now, Justin Martyr is one a key, a key example. Um, he can talk as if Jesus is um, a, a a divine being, but kind of like um, second in charge, um, like the silver medalist of divinity. Uh, but yeah. there are other things he talks about that makes it sound like he shares the gold medal with God the Father. And it's it's kind of like, well, which which one is it for Justin? And it's very hard to say because I, I don't think, again, 
I don't think he's worked out the precision and the coherence that we would find completely satis satisfactory. Um, but I do think there are some church fathers who really are making uh, absolute claims that the best one I can think of is Ignatius in Ephesians 7, 2, where he's, he talks about, you know, he's son of God, son of Mary, uh, you know, a, 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 tr a man and a human being. And then he says he's begotten and unbegotten. And I think there he means, based on the sort of the, um, the sort of, you know, the, the doublets that uh, Ignatius is making in that section, I think Ignatius is saying he's begotten in his humanity and unbegotten in his divinity, uh, which is a very strong claim indeed. And you can find similar language like that being used in the church father. So I, I don't think I don't think all of the second century apologists are all are all necessarily having Jesus as the silver medalist of divinity. I think some of them um, definitely do um, have it in the higher in the higher stakes. Uh, but even when they do, they can often say things that make you think, oh, hang on, but you just said he's, you know, great as God the Father. Now you're kind of ranking him down here with the angels. I mean, that's something that Justin does at one point. Um, so Justin, dude, which one is it? Um, the, I mean, the the contradiction had never entered his mind because he's he's just drawing together all the images he's he's taking from scripture, his own knowledge of worship, and and laying it out. Um, he's he's not worried that people, two hundred years or two thousand years later, are going to you know try trip him up on some elements of consistency that that we may have noticed. Um, so you mentioned you mentioned um, Ignatius saying unbegotten God, and I noticed that's in some manuscripts, but not others. Like when I look at it on NewAdvent.com, it doesn't have that begotten unbegotten thing, and it says first passable, then impassable, both of Mary and of God, um, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So um, I I don't know. Do, do you know anything about the textual variance of of that verse? The, I was Ignatian, pulling that up Ignatian, right before. Go ahead. Yeah. The, the Ignatian corpus uh, is very complex. There's a longer, shorter, and middle recension. Um, and how many letters are there in the Ignatian corpus? Um, going along with most of the of the sort of the AF scholars I know, and I, I've dabbled in this area a little bit. Uh, generally, I think the middle recension is regarded as the most reliable, the most authentic. And certainly in the critical editions I've read, I think here particularly of Holmes, um, Brannon. Um, they have begotten and unbegotten. Uh, the proof of that and the proof that that was originally in the manuscript is um, Athanasius has to defend Ignatius because here was the problem. Uh, the father was meant to be um, unbegotten and Jesus was distinguished from him by being eternally begotten. So by saying that Jesus is unbegotten, uh, there were some who wanted to say, well, that proves that Ignatius was a modalist because he was attributing the unbegottenness, not just to the father, but also to the son. So Athanasius is clearly a witness to the reception of that verse in the later church where people were trying to dismiss. Um, Interesting. Ignatius. So, so that variant is in the fourth century debate. Well, it's, around, it's, I, I mean, I, yeah. I, I can't say it's a hundred percent there in the early second, but it's definitely there by the time because um, Ignatius has to um, not Ignatius. Athanasius has to defend Ignatius for using the language of unbegotten and applying it to Jesus. Um, the way, the, what, the, what the church decided was, okay, well, he is an absolute divine, but we call the father begotten. So the way they called him an unbegotten 
begotten person. Um, it sounds like a contradiction. They said, okay, he's eternally begotten. So they swapped out the language of unbegotten, put the word eternal in there, which is to say he was begotten in the sense that he be became human or he, or, and in the sense that he sort of, you know, in some strange way derives from the father, but without actually being the father. So the father is unbegotten. The son is eternally begotten and the spirit eternally proceeds from the father and the son, if you're Latin. Yeah. So that, that was going to be one of my questions is that in your taxonomy between true gods and, and um, divinized heroes, you have unbegotten or ungenerated as one of the things of true God, but the Nicene Creed, Athanasius, Augustine, even say all the way to many Trinitarians now in the present, yeah, I, say I think that he, the son eternally, is begotten, eternally begotten, not even in his in. humanity. But begotten, he, even in his divine nature, it's a begotten divine nature. Yeah, I think eternally begotten swaps in for the unbegotten language because unbegottenness is the, the unique thing of the Father. The Father is unbegotten. And if you have another unbegotten being, that would basically mean two fathers or two deities. Because um, the Father, and particularly in, in Eastern Christology, the Father is the source of the divinity of the Father and the Son. The Father alone is autotheos. And now it gets a little bit complex when you get into other people, particularly when you get to John Calvin and, yeah. and all sorts of things, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, so the father is unbegotten, but how do you say Jesus is unbegotten without calling him unbegotten? And the, and what the church decided for was, okay, well, we'll call him eternally begotten, which is basically the same thing, but indicates his relationships and reliance on the father. Okay. Interesting. All right. I was wondering how you would answer that question. So you mentioned modalism. So in your understanding, what were sort of the main Christological camps, say, by the middle or late second century? And what were sort of the different distinctions between them? And then maybe after you lay that out, I'll ask you about how you connect which ones to the New Testament and being sort of more, um, I don't know, authentic or primitive. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a difficult, I mean, it's like how many, um, um, you know, how many uh, Christian groups are there in America right now? Um, you know, it may not have been that bad in the Eastern Mediterranean, <laughs> uh, but everyone's got their own view of, of, of Jesus or, or who he is. Um, Tertullian in the second, early third century seems to complain that modalism seems to be almost the default setting for much of the laity. Um, you know, and they just think, oh, one God, three, three different costumes, you know, uh, and he kind of opines that. Um, Justin Martyr, I think, is, is also a little bit worried that people may just, uh, you know, who, who run from paganism into a, into a strict monotheism may kind of jump at a, um, at a kind of modalism as the, as the easiest thing. I mean, and, and here's, here's the uh, an anecdotal thing. When I first became a Christian, and they're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. I, I did have a kind of, I think, erroneously tried to intuit a kind of modalist view that it's like one God in three different ways. And some friends actually said, "Well, actually, no, Mike, that's that's really not how it works." And they kind of sat me down. And I mean, if you, if you're a modalist, the uh, the baptism of Jesus becomes pretty weird, um, you know, where you know you got the Father says, "This is my Son, in, in whom I'm well pleased," and he receives the Spirit's pretty hard to do as a modalist um 
Yeah, so I mean, and then you also do get more complex versions of it, particularly like uh, Marcellus of Ancyra, and who was one of Athanasius's allies, and he was like a lead weight uh, bringing um, Athanasius down. So a lot of the Arian and semi-Arian critics would um, throw shade at Athanasius because he had uh, Marcellus in his camp, and Marcellus was a was was you know he definitely leaned in a modalistic direction. Um, so, so there were these there were these different groups, both at, I think at the level of the laity and more sophisticated manifestations um, of them. Uh, but the, the modalists, I think, failed. Uh, like for the reason I said, you, you can't read the baptism of Jesus if, uh, properly if you're a modalist. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Although sometimes, I, to be honest, when I was reading your book, sometimes I'm like, man, you when when you're arguing for highest divinity being incarnated in Jesus, I'm like, you know, the camp that that seems most like in the second or third century is the modalists. And when you hear, say, Novation argue against the modalists or Tertullian argue against the modalists, oftentimes they seemingly want to protect the divinity of the father. And, oh, yeah. And, and part of their way of arguing against them, and they seemingly want to have this kind of higher version of divinity that isn't incarnated, that's still imminent and non, you know, I don't know, visible, right? And, yeah, and, that yeah, and that's thing. and the, the whole idea of protecting the divinity and the monarchy of the father is a, a problem that persists right into the fourth and fifth century. And I mean, you could argue that um, Origen uh, was the one who really wanted to preserve the monarchy of the father. And he came up with a thing. Okay, look, the Logos is 99.9% divine, but he's this, but that father's still got that little extra 1% on him. And, um, and you, I mean, you could, you could argue, I mean, Origen was a towering theologian of the third century, but he bequeathed to the church both the, the problems and some of the solutions, but he never really brought the two of them together. And a, a lot of the church was still wrestling, I think, with some of the issues that that Origen and, and others uh, raised up as well in the fourth century. Uh, because, I mean, you know, if you ask the Arians, is Jesus divine? They would have said, of course he's divine. If you said to them, is he divine in the same way as God the Father? They'd say, oh, God, no, of course not. That's that's blasphemy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's what the debate was. In, in, is Jesus divine in the same sense as God the Father? Um, I think the, maybe the, the Arians, at least, would have said, "Well, no, he's he's a lesser divinity. He's a he's an uh, he's a um, he's of the same. He's a, he's a he's a lesser god of a greater father, uh, or something along those lines." And then that's when you get into all the debates with you know Athanasius and the Gregories and and, and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think pr- pr- protecting the monarchy of the father was probably more something that Arianism was concerned with. Uh, the necessary modalism. I think modalism, they just wanted, that it was more the unity of divinity they wanted to protect uh, rather than the the divinity of the Father. But definitely for the for the Arians and the semi-Arians and a whole bunch of other groups, uh, that's what they wanted to do. And, and even today, you could argue that, um, uh, you know, is, Islamic theology, um, you know, does kind of ride on this absolute monotheism that you, that you would have had with someone like, you know, Arius. Um, you know, even when Philo says that, you know, sooner could God become man than man become God, that sounds a lot like the Islamic doctrine that um, God does not beget and is not begotten. You know, one of the, one of the main mm. creeds of Islam uh, that completely rejects both incarnation and deification. Uh, so you, you, you can you can show that there's kind of like a dotted line between, you know, Philo and certain elements, you know, in the you know 
first century BC all the way through to um, uh, Islamic doctrine in the um, seventh and eighth century. On, on on this sort of absolute nature of monotheism that that it cannot it's it's, it's got to be above all things that touch the earth and if jesus touches the earth he can't be part of that absolute deity yeah and uh and what what also would you make of either you can call them adoptionists or sometimes i don't particularly like that word i bet you can guess why but also yeah. dynamic monarchians that sort of um divinized man christology uh, well, I mean, there, there were views, people that held those views, I believe, um, but I don't find it in the New Testament. Uh, the standard text trotted out to prove it. I've got, written a whole book about this, Journey to Jesus, the Eternal Son. Um, uh, I don't think Romans 1, 3 to 4 is an adoptionist Christology. I don't think the Gospel of Mark is adoptionist. Um, I, I tend to think that uh, uh, the, the Ebionites in the second century, I don't think are adoptionist, even though every book just keeps regurgitating the view that the Ebionites were adoptionist. What, what would you, so first off, how, so how would you define adoptionism? One reason I don't like the word adoptionist is that very few of them, I think, actually ever believe that Jesus was adopted. They would say that he was the son by virtue of the virgin birth, and then, you know, was then ascended into divinity after his resurrection. So Without an adoption, I don't really like the word adoption, but I still know that that's a common word in, yeah. in the sort of the literature. What what did they believe and what do you think the Ebionites believed? I, I'm curious about that. Well, I mean, my understanding adoption is that Jesus becomes the son of God at some point. Now, some would say he he's he's a he's the Messiah, but he becomes the son of God at his resurrection, a la Romans 1 4. You know, he became the son of God in power by resurrection of the dead. So there you've got the word son and son, you know, both in a filial sense, but also in the divine sense that happens at resurrection. So that's, that's one view. Another view is that he becomes the son at his baptism. You know, think of the gospel of Mark one, nine to 11, you know, uh, okay. This, this great Jewish man's gone into the water, got baptized. Like I wanted, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So he, and he receives the spirit, the divine unction, at that point, I mean, this, this is where I'm giving. This is not these are not my views. Just, just yeah, to be yeah, clear, I'm just giving the view. Or then, all the people. Well, no, he becomes the son of God at his birth. So, uh, some people are. And this is what Erm and even Raymond Brown argued that the the sonship of Jesus starts to get pushed earlier and earlier. He becomes the son of God at resurrection. Uh, then, in the next generation, he becomes the son of God at his baptism. And then, in the next generation, he becomes the son of God from his birth. And then, the next generation, he's always been the son of God. There never was a time when he was not the son of God. But those those latter few are considered an adoptionist Christology. Okay, and people claim they, that that's what the New Testament itself teaches, that the earliest Christology was adoptionistic. Uh, the Ebionites um, are a group that we know only through some of their critics, and I think the critics may not always be the most well-informed or always given a fair hearing or an accurate representation of their views. Nonetheless, they seem to be a Jewish Christian group of some sort, that believed that Jesus was inhabited by a divine power or like an angel came into him, something like mm -hmm. that. But there's that, no... That's where the, the blurriness between docetism yeah. and adoptionism can get a, a little bit. Exactly. Like, you mentioned Trolls Engberg Peterson a couple times in your book. I talked with him about two months ago, and he sort of supports a view that I think is kind of that, where this really heavy emphasis on the spirit actually sort of being the son of man that comes into jesus mm. at the baptism and that there's sort of this heavenly identity that then gets infused in a person or something yeah like and, that. and that's it seems to be something like that like a divine power or an angel came into him 
um, mm-hmm. but none of the literature says, and then he became the son of God. Okay. Uh, I tend to think the groups who are the closest to an adoptionist Christology are the Theodosians, and, and, and they're quite a complex group amongst themselves, different sort of factions within them. There are some that believe that when Jesus was resurrected, then he was kind of promoted into divinity. Uh, but even then, the, 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 the people don't always, they don't often say the son of God, but I mean, I've inferred. Um, here I'll refer your listeners to a very, very recent article, literally just came out this month by, I hope I get this right, Jeremy Coogan, um, if I remember correctly. Um, my apologies to, if, if I've got that wrong. Um, basically deconstructing the whole category of adoptionism. And he thinks that the, uh, as you can, I think you probably suspect, Sam, uh, that that category has been um, misused, misapplied. I think I think it's called adoptionism, um, deconstructing a dubious category. And um, he partly affirms my work that there, there isn't really much adoptionism in the New Testament, but he even he even argues that this this the Theodosians. He says, well, you know, if you define it properly, even the Theodosians are not really um, adoptionist in the technical sense. Right. Like I say, um, if you affirm the virgin birth and you think that Jesus is the Son of God at the virgin birth, like the some yep. of the Theodosians and Paul Samosata seem to have, then exactly adoption exactly. is a very weird label. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, and. and and, and this is the thing. So is this the language that's just used by the critics or these are just the, the categories we've used in scholarship and they're a bit clunky and we're, you know, we're trying to put people in these categories where they could belong in maybe one or two different categories. So is, is this the dispersions that cast on people in antiquity or is it just the clunky boxes that scholars and historians like to use and they, they don't always match? So, yeah, but uh, I think uh, Jeremy's got a good article on why he doesn't even like the category of adoptionism itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) so you talked about modalists and adoptionists and um, uh, angelic uh, possessionists. I'm not sure exactly what the right word is for that. So what, what label would you use for, say, the Ignatian, Justin, Martyr, Tertullian line um, you know, some people use logos incarnationalists, or but uh, do do you have a particular label for that, or or uh, do? You... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would probably call it incarnational because they do believe in a pre-existent Jesus who becomes human and is exalted back to heaven. Okay, mm-hmm. so I, I probably I probably would call it incarnational. But you do get um, what what I I would use for people like the Ebionites. I probably would use the term possessionist Christology where a power comes upon the man Jesus uh, and for others you could talk about you know uh, I think for the Theodosians if you're not going to call them a adoptionist maybe exaltationists that Jesus the man you know becomes divine at his resurrection or whenever it is um, mm-hmm. that they say um, people like Paul of Samosata I mean they've called that maybe not adoptionism maybe you know dynamic monarchianism uh, maybe that is a better term um, since he, he wants to preserve the um the supremacy of the father and Jesus is great, but great in great. And so far, he's still lesser than the father. Mm-hmm. So um, what, what would be your best argument against adoptionism or against dynamic monarchianism uh, as being the theology of the new Testament? Uh, I just think there is a big emphasis on Jesus, not just as um, the agent of the father, like a, uh, He's, he's not simply acting like a supreme angel, okay? Um, he's, I mean, consistently, 
he's placed above the angels okay um he's also you know closely associated with the divine throne uh he's not like an, an angelic attendant to the throne and one thing I do look in the book, I said, look, if you thought the earliest Christology was an adoptionist Christology, it fails. If you think the earliest Christology is Jesus as a super duper mega angel, I, I just don't think it works. And, you know, I tried to write out my own little creed. Like if I was writing my own little, you know, a creed from 50 AD about Jesus's angelic figure, what would it look like and sound like? And I actually wrote it out and I've included in the book, you know, uh, what an, an, a, a subordinated angelic Christology would look like. Um, using the language of of later figures, and I just can't map it onto the New Testament. Um, I do think Jesus is portrayed as at least um, parallel to both as an agent to God the Father, but also as uh, parallel to the Father, even to the point, in some senses, to the point of the divine being or, or, or divine prerogatives. Um, but it still takes you know the better part of. Um, so you've still got to develop the language and the lexicon to explain that in a coherent way. And that's what I think happened for the next, you know, um, 300 years. Okay, Jesus is divine, but how does he relate to the divinity of the Father? You know, if we're going to be monotheists, but not tritheists, how do we come up? And it becomes a, a back and forth trial and error. And I think that the consensus of the church was unbegotten Father, eternally begotten Son. That's, that, that's, mm -hmm. that, that's what they came up on the basis of their reading of scripture and developing the most coherent philosophical language they could for how to understand scripture, particularly in light of their own worship um, history and their own experience as well. Sure. This might be my last question to respect your time. What, what do you make of, say, the New Testament language of Jesus having a God, of God the Father, not just being his father, but also mm -hmm. being his God, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my father, your father, my God, and your God, or half yeah. of Paul's letters open. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even the book of Revelation, I think, has Jesus calling uh, God his own God, you know, four or five times or something like that. I, that that was one of those things that stuck in my mind reading your book yeah. is that seemingly an absolute deity wouldn't have his own deity. So uh, how, how would you answer that question? Yeah, well, I, I Usually when that's happening, it's Jesus in his incarnate state talking about it. And I think I think the New Testament uh, does talk, uh, refer to and maintain and guard the monarchy of the Father. You know, that the, the, the Father is God the Father, that kind of sense. And Jesus, certainly in his humanity, can talk about, you know, my God and your God. I, I think that language is, is entirely uh, appropriate. Uh, he doesn't snicker when he says, oh, by the way, that, that's what we're also talking about me here, in case you're wondering. Now, I, I think these these are elements. I mean, the, the Jesus of the Gospels does have a monotheistic piety. Um, you know, he talks about the kingdom of God. He talks about the uh, the law of God. Um, he talks about obedience to God. And he's not. He he's prays not to God about, and worships God in the temple. Exactly. He prays. He, uh, prays to, he goes to the temple and temple is a worship of God. Uh, but those are things we see largely in the sense of his humanity. And one thing I, I did find, I cannot find any references in patristic literature to the, to the son preexistent or exalted worshiping God, the father. So you, you, um, in I, the I, ascension of Isaiah, actually, of all the obscure works, there's a yeah. time when Isaiah gets to heaven, he meets the ghost of the Holy Spirit or the angel yeah. of the Holy Spirit. He meets the son 
and bows down to them. And then there's a time where everybody, including the Son and the Holy Spirit, bow down to. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. Father. Yeah. I think yeah. that's 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 probably the the, the one. And that's pre-incarnate um, in, in in the ascension of Isaiah because yeah. it's Isaiah. Uh, yeah. Right? yeah, I, th I think I think I think uh, from memory you might, but that may be the 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 one account where that the Son and Spirit both down to the Father. But that the normal uh, thing you get is um, is all of heaven bowing down and and Jesus is there kind of receiving divine worship, uh, or or he's the kind of one through whom it's happening he's kind of mediating it so yeah that's that's how i'd refer to that gotcha um any any last remarks before we uh, uh bring this to a close uh the only thing i'll, I'll say about the book is I, I do have a lengthy discussion of intermediary figures so you know we i, I do talk a lot about and, and this is one thing I, i've tried to do is say well you know let me back up uh, a friend of mine down the road, David Litwa. I mean, that's another guy you, you, you'll want to chat to. You'll love David Litwa. Um, he makes a good point. When you compare Jesus with like angels, Zeus, he Heracles, or whoever, he says, look, if you focus on similarities, you end up with what's called parallelomania, saying this is that and flattening out the distinctives between the two. Uh, if you focus on differences, it's really just apologetics, trying to say, well, Jesus is nothing like Zeus or anything. Um, and I think what I've tried to do in the book is go through the various intermediary figures, you know, the anarchic son of man, all sorts of angels and say, okay, in a, in a fair, uh, account, in what sense is Jesus similar to these figures and in what sense is he different? And I, I think I've given a reasonable summary, um, you know, how Jesus is similar and different to the, the anarchic son of man to a you know deified roman emperor so i mean that that's a, that's another part of the book i mean this sort of thing about divine ontology is obviously very significant but i've also tried to map jesus against the various intermediary figures so uh, that's something readers of the book may may also like and value all right well great yeah we we maybe didn't get to dwell on that enough but thank you very much uh i'll i'll leave links to your materials and especially to the book in the description for this video but uh mike thank you very much for your time uh, i appreciate it very much well thank you very much sam for having me on and uh thank you to all the listeners for uh joining us for this um podcast <laughs>